now everything does kind of feel like a movie. So people just think continually they can get away with something because it was cinematized, because they saw it in like a film, or they almost treat their lives in that way. So that is an interesting, uh, which then leads to the whole, well, you know, do these things get worse as we go into the metaverse? And people now can have these simulated realities. Welcome to the New Wave Entrepreneur where we dive headfirst into Web 3.0, personal sovereignty, spirituality, and psychology. These conversations are unfiltered access to brilliant minds and actionable advice that will prepare you for the rapidly changing world. So jump in. The water is warm and the tide is rising. Ah, my friends, welcome back to an episode of the New Wave Podcast. Daniel, you guys are checking in with you here. So happy to have you. Uh, I am elated to bring Natasha Willis onto the show today, and she's done so much in business, both in just marketing and the new development of Web3, that I think it's a crucial time to bring her in. And multiple people from the audience recommended that I bring her. And by the way, when I do those calls to action, make sure you give me good guest recommendations. It helps me helps me to do my research, and then I meet new people, then you get to hear from them. So keep doing it. By the way, check out newwaveentrepreneur.com. That's where we have all the new, all the new workshops I'm doing. We have New Wave Dinner Experiences that I'm hosting. The next one's going to be in June in Austin, by the way. And make sure that you're subscribing uh, to this channel or to this podcast, whatever you're listening to it on, whatever platform you're listening to it on, whether it's Spotify, iTunes, leave a comment, leave a review. Uh, it makes us it makes us proud and it makes us look good so that when I ask people to come on the show, they look at the reviews and they say, oh, this looks like a decent show. I'm going to go on it. So please do your part. It's a free podcast. I appreciate you. Uh, that's all I have for you. Let's jump right into the show with Natasha. Hello. That was the most, um, that was the most scripted, but, uh, but also improv, improv live intro I've ever done. It was the first time I did live before. (laughs) No, that was honestly perfect. I feel like you were right to the point, not taking too much time and letting people know what's up. So I know I I always cringe when I run my own ads, you know, it's like, Oh, come subscribe to me and come da 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 da. But that's what we're doing here. We're doing a show, right? Yep. Exactly. Got to do it. Help people spread the love. You got to let's, let's spread the love. Um, so you're in South Florida, yeah? Yes. So in I'm in now. South Florida, Hollywood now. Florida is one of those places where um, the humidity makes it so that you have to take a shower immediately after walking outside. Yeah, I haven't experienced Immediate. it yet. You probably Hit know stuff. much better than me. Yeah, Oof. I know. Um, it's, not but- hot. it's not that hot yet. June, July, it's over. That's what I've heard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. funny that because I grew up in Orange County, California, like I would always carry a jacket with me because I get cold, like with the slightest little bit of wind. And so now I was most excited to move here because I don't ever have to carry a jacket with me. I know that's not going to be that enjoyable in the summer, but nonetheless, <laughs> I feel like I just run. So I don't know if it's hot or cold or whatever, but I, I enjoy I the I heat. Cold. My, my wife is always making fun of me. She's always like, why are you always cold? I said, it's because my body fat is so low. I'm so lean. That's what it is. Yes. That's interesting. I'm a hundred pounds, five feet, a little bit under five feet. So I'm <laughs> yes, fairly, you, you know, cold. not a whole lot of uh, meat. <laughs> very, yes. Very lean. You need to have a jacket for emergency purposes. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Uh, well, you know, in the metaverse, you could be as tall as you want, right? True. 
True. And I think the fun thing about the metaverse too is going to be, my husband and I talk about this all the time because we've been in business together for the last six years and are now going into web three together. He kind of pulled me in. I'm not as much of an early adopter as him. And uh, one of the things that we always talk about is how you're going to have multiple identities yes, in the metaverse. And yes, so exactly. it's going to be really cool to be able to be like, yeah, today I want to be tall. Fuck it. Right. And then right. tomorrow, okay, I want to be a, you know, whatever the hell, a pixie fairy for, you know? Yeah. So yeah. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what comes out of that with creativity purposes. But anyways, for the purposes of me being tall or short, yeah, it's going to be fun to uh, be able to kind of leverage different uh, levers, if you will. Do, do you think that with, you know, okay, so we know that Facebook is trying to, from my, in my opinion, set the, set the narrative for how the metaverse should be received. Do you agree with that? I would agree with that. And to go even a step further, because I watched uh, Mark Zuckerberg's really interesting and cool podcast with Tim Ferriss a couple weeks ago when that yep. aired. Okay. And I think Tim just did such a good job of making Mark feel like a human, right? Everyone always complains about how he feels like a robot or something in the way he talks. Yeah. And so um, I think though that in him, you know, just talking about how he started to learn about everything that's going on in Web3, what the potential outcomes could look like. Everyone is looking at Ready Player One, I feel like at least in leadership standpoint, saying, hey, I read this, this inspired me so much. And so you're just seeing a lot of copy paste, if you will, of like the ideas that were in Ready Player One and the things that were shown there and people trying to kind of embed that. So I feel like yeah, Mark yeah. And, and Meta have taken a lot of inspiration from that. They've even done the name change and some of even like the things that you see that happen mm -hmm. in Ready Player mm -hmm. One outlined. And it's kind of mapping out their moves here. But nonetheless, I think that they are trying to set precedent there's two things here, though, and we can go down a lot of paths with this, but yep. I think that in Web 2, one of the things that I've noticed the most in terms of like the voices that people use um, in Web 2 versus Web 3, I've been noticing it a lot more, is that, you know, I came into Web 3 speaking like I did as a digital marketer in Web 2. And immediately, anytime I'm making content, my husband's like, yo, that sound like that's just way too definite. Like that might not be true. People challenge that fact. And then recently... I was filming a bunch of speaker intros for an advertising conference called AdWorld. And what I also found interesting was that in all the intro scripts that I'd been given, all of them are like, for example, one that I was adjusting yesterday is a shocking 99% of marketers make this mistake when they film a video for a YouTube ad. And it's like, well, you know, where's that coming from, right? Is that just opinion? But it's said so much as fact. And so in web two, that's been very much the vibe of like, you can make people believe whatever it is you're saying, as long as you just never, you know, defer essentially. And you sound super confident and arrogant yeah. in a sense. Really, really sales. Direct, yeah. Direct sales. yeah. <laughs> and that's how I feel like Meta is approaching this where anything they say, even with their announcement of like, yo, we're going to take 47 point whatever percent of all NFT sales that happen in our marketplace. Like there's just things that they've done where they're just being really aggressive, like big dick kind of moves. But then I think in web three, because everyone's so like, you know, just be transparent and whatever. People are still going to yeah. shit on you, but at least you'll be more welcomed. I think that as they hopefully see that environment, they'll try to play a little bit nicer with it. Um, but I'll stop there. There's a few other thoughts I have, but I want to, you know, kind of open up too. Well, I mean, the first thing is I'm not sure if Facebook or I, I'm still going to call them Facebook, Meta, I guess. I'm not sure if yeah. Meta <laughs> has, has ever really learned to play nice with other people in other companies. Totally. So they'd have to change their corporate personality for them to thrive in this new environment if the new environment is going to be more open and transparent and more collaborative and community-based because they, they take a perspective of join us or die. 
Yes, totally. Or we'll buy you, you know, or we'll buy you or we'll crush you. We'll copy you and crush you. Yeah. And people don't like that ethos anymore. Or maybe they never, they never liked it. Yeah. And are definitely more vocal about it to that point. But I think that one of the things too, is that because they're so big now, it's almost like, you know, we're going to be forced to involve them, do something with them. They just have so much real estate right now in the digital space. So I think some integration will come and happen, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it kind of develops. Cause like you said, people just have become more vocal over the years of like, yo, they're just a crazy monopoly aggressive come in, you know, very Silicon Valley, like cutthroat vibe. I think, I think, I think I was talking to a friend about this the other day. I think the, whatever antitrust or anti-monopoly laws exist are clearly not being enforced because obviously there are many monopolies in the United States. And so that is just very shocking. And, uh, I think that, I think that, well, I, I saw the, I saw the Lex Friedman Zuckerberg interview. So I didn't see the Tim Ferriss one. I'm not sure they talked about the same things. I think that and, and well, I'll watch the Tim interview, but I, I don't think that people grill Mark hard enough on some of the integrity issues that the company has. I think they kind of like are so like, oh, what what a visionary. Tell us about the metaverse, bitch. Right. Tell us about the data. Tell us about the emotional manipulation. Tell us about the there's no resolution with um, with some of these political things that have happened. Like, and I feel like we kind of let him have a pass because we're like, oh, I, I think there's some level where it's like, well, Mark, we kind of feel sorry for Mark Zuckerberg because it's like, oh, you know, he. He couldn't control it. It just got out of control. But he's making decisions at a, at a high level. That That's my opinion. Yeah, no, completely agreed. And, you know, I've had such a love-hate relationship with Facebook because of Facebook, Meta, you know, et cetera, their family of, of products. Because I ended up building a lot of my business over the last six Me years too. using <laughs> Facebook platforms, right? Like, Spent and- so much money with them, so much time on their platform. They've yep. helped me. I'm not saying they haven't been good for me. I'm just saying- No, totally. Some of the, the the integrity is not there. Agreed, and I think it's our role too, like even as users, to to keep people accountable. Of course, these platforms be talking about this as much as you can from an intelligent perspective too, as a business person. Because I think there's so many opinions out there, even from like prominent business leaders that are just way too emotional. Right, something happened personally to them, or something just really doesn't sit well with them. Which you know, of course, emotion is going to drive you to do something, but. Um, you know, I like the way that you laid it out because at the end of the day, it's also got to come from a logical standpoint of like, here's the facts. And so what do you have to say about that? And like you said, hasn't been grilled enough in a environment where like he can also feel like he can talk about it. Right. I feel like it's kind of a two-sided thing in a sense. You know, that, that whole song and dance with the Senate, the Senate doesn't even really know what to ask him and they don't follow up on the important stuff when it happens, you know? So that was a, that was a show to me and he's still there was a great article in the Atlantic, maybe it was, I think it was last year, where they basically made a case for, for Facebook, Meta, being its own sovereign nation state, just that not localized. Mm-hmm. And because every member is a citizen, those the citizens do transactions on it. We have a citizenship. We don't want to be banned from the universe. Uh, there's there, And there's a big case to be made. We're paying taxes in a way with our attention. Right. Um, and and it's it's intra-governmental, so no one government can shut it down. And it, 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 it made it made a case, and it, it kind of um, it spooked me a little bit. <laughs>
Yeah, that's totally fair. And I, I kind of liken that to what's happening in Web3 and all these decentralized platforms not mm-hmm. truly being mm-hmm. decentralized, right? There's a huge argument for that going around now where right. like it's true. There's such a big majority share. You know, Andreessen Horowitz owns like a part of pretty much every company in Web3 oh, yeah. and so on, right? All the other big players. Even Ethereum. What if Vitalik gets hit by a bus tomorrow? That won't be good for the price of Ethereum. Probably, yeah. right? Because he's the guy. Um, exactly. And it is decentralized, but yeah, there's there are definitely issues with it. And what about what about Elon Musk not only buying nine point two percent of Twitter, but then making a bid to buy the whole thing? Do you see that? Yeah. Yes, I what did this morning. The fuck! No, no, we don't need that. We don't need that. Am I am I off here? Yeah, no, I, I definitely don't think you're off. I think he makes an interesting point with taking the company private. Um, but in regards to, I mean, that covers kind of that. a whole other slew of what, what, issues. What did he say about that? Yeah, just in his SEC filing saying, hey, I believe that Twitter needs to be a private company in order for you guys to actually continue to expand as a platform, et cetera, et cetera. And, work and on he would own it as a private company? Yeah, I don't know what that would look like. I'm not familiar with that process, but. <laughs> you know, this is all under the assumption that Elon Musk, and, and I, I, look, on paper, I really like Elon Musk, but I just think it's out of control with these, with the billionaires buying up the media sources mm-hmm. and then putting out the stuff, putting out whatever they want and using it as a, as a dick measuring contest with each other. Right. I, I, I'm over. They're, they're all doing space. They're all doing media. It's like, guys, this is not what it was intended for. I'm sorry. No, I, I completely agree with you from that standpoint. I think Elon has made it like he's done such a good job, whether it's intentional or not to be this way, which I imagine it is right. But he's done such a good job of like getting the in with like the common person, right? When right. it comes to social using, um, you know, humor as, as his main point. Yeah. He's but- a meme god. Exactly. He's a true meme god. What was it? I've seen so many good memes about that. Like whoever controls the memes controls the world. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he, he's, he's so, I mean, he's, look, he's really good at, he's kind of, it's kind of weird because on the one hand, he's like, potentially he's on the spectrum. On the other hand, he's very good with getting people to, <laughs> to he's, you know what I'm saying? Yes. He yes, clearly has exactly. Asperger's a little bit or something. He has some, he's on, there's autism spectrum is very long and he's somewhere on there, you know? Yeah. Exactly. But at the same time, he's beloved. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. I feel like there's not enough studies or you know information out on on leaders who even had like a similar kind of chemistry or, or background to him. So yeah, it's going to be. I mean, it's just a close thing to watch, right? And accountability, like we talked about, just needs to be really aggressively, constantly harped on to just make sure things don't devolve. The public is more fickle than it used to be, and I think even Elon, if he makes one or a few mistakes, you know, yes. people will turn. People will turn. He's not invincible. And, he, you know, even something about considering Tesla, like it's a clean energy company, but then you have the fact that they're drilling all these mines in Africa to get the nickel or, or, or like lithium and different battery, uh, precious metals and uh, things like that in order to extract it to create these batteries. And they're creating uh, not only waste there, but also child mining. And that's actually happening. And that's something that's not talked about a lot. Yeah, I haven't dove into that nearly as much as I would like you know, to, but it's like you have the it's like you have the environmental impact of oh saying oh we're creating all this clean electric energy on the grid, but then what's the economic and the social impact of what it takes to create that? So it's something interesting to think right. about when you think about what's the cost of technology. One thing I've been uh, talking about with friends is like when is enough enough? You know, just because we can uh, make more technology, just because we can, for instance, do Neuralink where we connect the computer to our brain, does that mean right. we should? And does it imp- does does human evolution have to go lockstep with technological evolution? What do you think? Yeah, no, that's such a great way to to put it all. 
I think for me personally coming at it, it's like I think before before I kind of went through a trend, before actually I did my first mushroom journey, <laughs> I think oh, okay. that I would have yeah, been on, on the first side of things though, to, to answer your question, right? I, you know, growing up, quick backstory, right? I lost my dad when I was seven. And I think that created this like crazy kind of ambitious, I always think of it like pulling a rubber band back, right? And it's like, all this kind of, you know, I definitely didn't have it nearly as bad as so many other people around the world, but nonetheless had a big impact, right? Um, not having him there for certain things, not being able to go to a dad figure, et cetera. And so I think as soon as I turned 18, I kind of took a lot of the things that I was learning from different books. You know, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad from Robert Kiyosaki. Oh, yeah. I read Four Hour Workweek. These books, plus the unfortunate, very like macho alpha, I don't give a fuck, I'm going to build, you know, a big company and, and sacrifice people along the way. Like all these Instagram posts that were really big back then, like millionaire, millionaire. Was it millennial mentor? No, millionaire mentor as like one example right back then. He's doing a little bit of a different thing now. But I remember just like I was 17, you know, then 18. And back then that was totally how I approached the world though. I was like, we're going to go full on, like do whatever. doesn't matter. Sacrifice, you know, like I'm empathetic, but I'm not emotional enough to like worry about that. It's kind of like a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Free for all kind of thing. And then now as I'm getting a little bit older and started to, to explore with psychedelics the last like year and a half to two years. That's definitely brought me more back into the feminine energy inside of things. And I think that that's helped me a lot with thinking about the question that you just asked, which is like, is it necessary for us as humans to force ourselves to evolve technology along with ourselves at the pace that it's going? And I think it's just going to happen regardless, because there's always going to be those people that have such- We can't not happen. do it. They won't yeah. stop. Yep, exactly. There's always going to be one person who's pushing that narrative forward and doing those things. Even even, even with the even with the, with the, with with gain of function research with COVID, where they say we're going to test mm. to see if we can make these super viruses so that we can see if we can nullify them. It's like, yeah. guys, if there's even a point zero zero anything percent chance that the virus gets out, it kills everybody. What are you doing? Don't test that. You know, <laughs> maybe test it in you know test it with the computer. Right? Use quantum computing to test the virus combinations, but don't make the virus because look what the fuck happened. And we know, Natasha, we know it likely came from a lab that passed it to, I mean, you'd have to be dumb. They want to, they want to tell us the simplest, dumbest thing, but if they have a lab in Wuhan right next to the market and, or come on, it's obvious. Like, <laughs> so we can't not, we can't not try things. And the problem is that we don't look to fix things until there's a problem. Yes. And it has to be a big problem. Yeah. It's been a big shift for sure. I think in thinking, especially in the last decade, you know, pretty much since like America's inception, right? Cause the world I think was very, very different before America created this breeding ground for people to do whatever the fuck they want, which has been amazing with inventions, with, you know, people creating all sorts of great things, living the American dream, et cetera. Um, but at the same time, things have been taken a little bit too far now, I think, in my opinion, given that there are people who just like have absolutely no care for anything else. And again, it's kind of a free for all, just like people doing whatever. Kind of lost my train of thought there. I was going to try to bring it back to what you had said, but I forgot where I was going with that. So, <laughs> no, no, it's no, I know what you're saying, though. It's like, like, again, when is enough enough? You know, it's like we're we we make this if, if, techno if technology is exponential and infinite, is there a point where we say for our own good, we we cap ourselves or 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 we we there, because there's a difference, a difference between between intelligence and wisdom, right? And intelligence mm -hmm. can can take you very, very far, but 
it can also take you into the wrong direction. And when you go into the wrong direction, you learn that becomes wisdom. And wisdom can and usually comes from pain, but it doesn't have to because you can use the wisdom of elders and of nature to determine what is right for you. And don't let, don't let your intelligence overpower your wisdom. Yeah, no, beautifully said for sure. I, and I think we're so smart that we're, we're too smart, you know, because in the past, we've pretty much always gotten a solution to what our problem has been. Oh, well, we'll just, you know, we'll just do this with the economy. This will fix it. Well, we'll just do this with science. We'll just make a vaccine for it. Oh, we'll just uh, produce more crops this way. But we're going against nature a lot of times. And we're trying to fix it mm-hmm. with, with technology. And technology will probably, technology is nature in a way, because if we are making technology and we are nature, then yeah. technology is nature. But I don't think that we're going to be able to outsmart the natural process of evolution with technology. Yep. No, completely agreed. And I kind of remember where I was going before to to your point about us as a society not worrying about or working towards being able to provide solutions to problems that we see. It's always like, let's put a Band-Aid on that. And I think that's right. been really embedded into American culture, which we see with our health, you know, with people just wanting to take a pill to fix something that maybe daily mm-hmm. exercise mm-hmm. could help or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it might be. So I feel like, unfortunately, a lot of that is led by just the way that we've trained ourselves to think or allowed other Americans to think and then put that out on social media that impacts more people that embeds itself in parenting, which I think is the number number one root cause of most of the problems in the world is, you know, of course, how you experience life as a child and then what that leads you to do. Right. And so, so anywho, yeah, to your point, it's like, I think being able to just take a little bit of a shift there where even with smaller things in life, if you can train yourself to think about how do I find a solution for this problem that probably already exists, I'm just not thinking about it instead of trying to like find the, the magic pill or whatever it might be you know, then I think things would be a little bit better over time and allow us to take that thinking into then the building of new tech, the building of new companies, the building of education over the next few years and for the rest of the time we're around on earth. You know, I think about what, what humanity could do if we all were working as one, because there is a there is a, a way in which we could operate as an entire population, which would benefit everybody. Now that now that would take, it would, we just aren't of the constitution to be able to do that. We don't have our, our, our independent minds won't allow us to do it because we don't realize that we're all linked together. But I imagine that if we could all realize that the actions that we're taking directly impact each other and we could create a, a system yes. of, of living where we could truly create equality and, and, and quality of living, if not, doesn't always mean everyone has the same amount of money in the bank, but more just in terms of like access to resources, emotional health, mental health, things like that. I imagine we could do a lot as a population. I imagine that we could actually evolve some of these technologies much further with less damage to the earth Mm -hmm. and to each other. You know, because for instance, we would only choose to create technologies that we really thought were making uh, a positive impact rather than just solely seeking out get capital, you know, solely seeking out. And and most of the time, our, our emphasis is always profit. And a lot of times that leads us to the wrong end goal, you know. Yeah, that actually brings up a question I saw asked a couple months ago, I think, but um, I thought it was an interesting perspective because again, because of the way I kind of ended up approaching business as I became an adult, I was a lot more in that kind of like masculine energy, right, of, of capitalism. Yep. And so now that I've kind of balanced that out, I have a greater perspective. Obviously, I've, I've run businesses now and better understand just how the world works and what I want the world to look like. I'm curious what your thoughts are on kind of capitalizing or monetizing everything that you do or attempting to, because I saw the interesting perspective, can't remember who it was, but they're like, 
you know, I love writing or, or I love doing whatever. Like, why do I feel this pressure to have to monetize this hobby right. that I'm doing or this skill set or whatever? Yeah. Because now with America, again, having led most of the entertainment and content creation across many mediums, um, you know, at least over the last decade, that's infiltrated everywhere. You know, when I was in Thailand, they're listening to American oh, yeah. music and watching American movies. <laughs> when I'm in Japan, oh, yeah. when I'm in Australia, et cetera, it's all the same. So I'm curious what your take is on that given you've had an interesting journey of being able to monetize a lot of different skill sets and mediums. Um, but like right. what you think now or like what you would tell someone if, if they asked that. Yeah, it's hard for me. I definitely wouldn't bash uh, monetizing your, your IP. Uh, I think that your IP is your greatest asset. And it's a, way of, it's a way of compensating yourself for all the work that goes into developing a skill set. There's, uh, there's a great story about Pablo Picasso where he's in the cafe and he's drawing, uh, he's drawing something and um, a fan comes up to him and says, Mr. Picasso, will you draw something from me? And he takes a few seconds to draw a beautiful picture of a bird and hand it to her on the napkin. He says, that'll be $5,000. And she says, oh, you've only spent three minutes drawing it. And says, yes, but a lifetime to master. And that's, you know, the idea of mastering a skill set and that there's intrinsic value in the time that you put into something. And, you know, your IP is the fruit of that. So you can definitely charge for it, you know, but, but people feel nervous because they don't feel like they're, uh, what what they're giving is valuable enough, and so it's usually a mental a mental barrier uh, that stops people from being able to monetize their their lives. Um, at the same time, you should still have things that you're doing just purely for fun, because not everything has to be part of a funnel that leads to a sales page. And um, I think that you can always tell when someone's doing content just to extract money versus when Absolutely. they are really truly enjoying what they're doing. Maybe not at first, but over time, you definitely can tell. And yeah. you can be a you can be a very big name in the personal brand space and really not be enjoying what you're doing. Then it wouldn't be worth it to me because you're like monetizing your life, but it gets gross. You know, yeah. you know, you can get your 1,000 true fans, which is your tight core tribe, charge what you're worth, get everything, and give everything, and be real, real happy with it, and not fly below Instagram and be making bank, fly below the Instagram radar and still be killing it, and that's a fun life. You know, so. Yeah, no, I love that. Completely agreed with you on both ends. I think um, I think that uh, Naval Ravi kind of talks about that. He talks about the idea of one developing specific skills. So it's like the idea of you go through your, throughout your life and you pick up different skill sets and then you put them together in interesting, unique ways. And as you sell your skills to the world, you have a unique skill set that no one else can copy just by going to school or by watching a YouTube tutorial because it's a, it's a unique. So for you, you know, school of pots. Web3 stuff, your entire journey, everything led up to that point. And then you're monetizing not just one of those things, but the combination of it. And that's what you bring. Now, in, in, in previous eras, people would go to school just for one discipline, or they would go uh, and, and study just one craft. And that was valuable. But then they saw that machines were replacing it, that it was worthless, that it was being outsourced to other countries, that it was just being eliminated completely from public need. And so that's when the need for interdisciplinary skill sets and specific skills has really come into focus. And when you combine that with something along the lines of a, um, of like a, like a scalable business that's really, uh, what is it, like permissionless, basically, where it's like uh, media or code or, um, or you know, content, anything like that, you know, books. Things where you can, there's a, there is an upfront cost to make it, but then the cost to duplicate it is basically zero. It's like no marginal cost of replication, you know, and it's infinitely buildable. That is where you can really start to scale your, 
your own your own IP. Yeah, a hundred percent. I feel that really strongly, and I've been thinking about that more and more recently too. As I'm making a transition out of this identity that I built, you know, in the first yep. season of my career, and, mm-hmm. and now moving into okay, well, how do I take all of that and be able to to translate it over to the next thing? Um, and I think nowadays too, with all the tech that's available to you, it's somewhat doable to do with any skills that you might have acquired, even if it's something as simple as like, I don't know, let's say you've been mowing lawns for the last five years. Okay, well, now you can take that in and turn it into an information product or consult businesses or like whatever have you. So I think that that you make such a great point that now more than ever, that is truly the superpower and people really need to evaluate themselves at that end instead of comparing to someone else who, again, there's no way two people can have the same path. I, in the, especially in the entrepreneurship space, and you were saying like, oh, you know, I, I, when I was building businesses, I was feeling that masculine energy of like just accomplishment, achievement. And that's, that's a good place to be when, when you're like in that space. But oftentimes what it will do is it will, it will create this comparison syndrome with others where you aren't measuring your own progress against yourself. You're just measuring it against other people. But mm-hmm. it, that, that, that sometimes takes you off course. Totally. Makes you do things that, you know, A, uh, you, and I heard this talked about at a mastermind too, which I was like, oh my gosh, so perfect, right? You you look at the competition doing something and you're like, oh, they're not smarter than me. Like I could do that too. And then you go into right. and you're like, oh shit, they must be pretty smart because this is fucking hard. Yeah. <laughs> or like, yeah. I could build a winning VSL too with the exact yeah. same script or whatever, you know? Yeah. So you're completely right. There's always that comparison, which leads to copy and paste, unfortunately, a lot of the time right. too. Right. That, and that's that's kind of why I, I have mostly eliminated myself from the online course game. I, I will still do yeah. digital offerings of sorts, but I don't feel like I don't feel like there's much unique to be done in that space. And I, I I'd rather I'd rather work on projects where it's something that I can really leave my individual mark than doing totally. another marketing course, you know. Yeah. No, I, I completely feel you on that. I think there's still a big market for education, but the model in which online courses have been created and delivered over the last, let's say, five to 10 years, I think that that has now aged. And there's also a lot a of resistance. Stale. You know, as we've been talking about the differences between Web 2 and Web 3. And one of the biggest differences that I notice is that people are very resistant and uh, hateful even towards anyone who sold courses or sold information in Web 2. Like, it's crazy. Right. You're like, what the fuck? Like you wouldn't pay this person to like accelerate. I see it all the time. I'm really, I like to take the Gary V whatever approach of like always looking at comments and just kind of seeing like what the hell people are saying and talking about. Right. And I find that on TikTok and Twitter, people are the most hateful towards, uh, <laughs> well, that's, yeah, I'm not surprised they are doing that. Right. And it's funny cause it's just become such a stereotype where like having built a consulting and online training business, you know, I remember that, that, years back when I didn't quite have the right way to like defend my argument. I remember someone was like, so are you kind of like doing what Ty Lopez does? And I was like, no, not at all. But I was like, I didn't know how to reply to that. You know, (laughs) I was like, it's 19 or 20, right? Our businesses were doing really well. We were really helping people. Like I wasn't just in it to, you know, scam people on a course. But I think that unfortunately there's that difference in perspective of people are used to like a third party authority, like an educational institute saying, yo, this person is credible. So you should learn from them. Like they've accepted that model. Whereas then, you know, you or I go out there, anyone else. And granted, there are a lot of people who unfortunately aren't credible on what they're talking about and just pop up an online course because it's easy. 
But I think that that gets misconstrued a little bit too, where they're like, well, they're the ones saying that they're authoritative. So I don't believe them. And therefore I hate all people who look like them or are selling something like them. So I've definitely seen that a lot, but to your point, I think that there's still a lot of room for online education businesses. It's just going to look very different as we move forward. I, well, two things. I think one, this has just shown, especially with the pandemic, has shown people still have a need for in-person interaction with each other. Totally. Uh, not everything can be done on Zoom. And and we've learned that over extended periods of time communicating digitally, it there's feels like there's a lack. It, it does feel, it's not as fun. And so that, at least that's been my experience. And so I think that that is kind of where I'm leaning towards. It's like, how can I create great in-person experiences with a digital component? Sure. But in-person first, digital second. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as we're allowed to travel, of course, but yeah. as they as they reduce the um, your ability to travel, you value it even more, don't you? Um, exactly. <laughs> and another thing I'll say too is, you know, people just dog on Ty Lopez. And honestly, first of all, first of all, most people dog on Ty Lopez are motherfucking haters. Okay, I'm not a huge. I'm not like Ty's number one fan, but he was always nice to me. And I ne- and, and if you actually look at his courses, he's not telling bad information. It's just that people yeah. get so they get their mind is blown by the fact that some su- such an average person, an apparently average person, would mm-hmm. be so incredibly successful, and he would also flaunt it, but in like a shit eating way because he, you know, people a lot of people are haters. Now I'm sure you can go and say you can read uh, Scam Alert of Ty Lopez. I'm sure there's websites for it. But I can just say from my, from my personal experience, and I have close friends who are friends with him, and I never got any of that weird shit from him. And I, I'm, a, I'm a good like scoper of people's vibes, and I met a lot of people, and um, he didn't give me a bad vibe, and and he did what he said he was going to do on my end. So, and he's and he's obviously smart at marketing. Yeah, you just nailed it there. That like he did what he said he was going to do, and. That's why people like Gary Vee, who document everything, people like him, you can go back and see that they did what they did. Sure, like, so I really respect him as a marketer. I think I met him in 2019 and like we talked quite a bit. Uh, No, not Gary, uh, Ty. So Uh, to your point, I I really like and respect Ty as a person, as an entrepreneur. At the same time, you know, it's tough. Once you get to that level, it's like you're always going to get haters. In fact, like I always- No one likes you to do that well. Yeah, exactly. No one wants you to do better than you. And so they'll they'll be happy. I just bought Radio Shack. No one's happy he bought Radio Shack and Pier One. (laughs) It's like we were happy when you were on YouTube and that was cool. We can make fun of you. Now you're buying legitimate companies. Yeah. So we have to hate on you. Yeah. You know, he bought Dress Barn. It's like, what? You're buying buying retail companies and you're spinning them around into e commerce? You're making Radio Shack into an NFT? Okay. That's really fucking smart. You're going to be a billionaire. Oh, okay. That, you know, now it's not, he's not playing anymore. And so that's why I'm like, man, I don't, I don't know if he scammed anybody. I don't think he did, but he definitely made some plays and he called it. Got to respect it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, I. Now, now here's a, here's a question. How come you don't see more women doing that in the entrepreneurship space? Doing, making big moves like that. Or maybe that's fair. Well, I think there are some. However, I think that unfortunately women have been caught in, it's not unfortunate, just an involvement, right? Because women have really more so like aggressively entered the workforce really over the last like decade, let's say even like 50 years, right? More and more people, um, even more so in the 2000s, right? Of More women than ever diving into the workforce because they can create digital businesses or work remotely or whatever. Um, I think that there is a weird 
like approach to how you should put yourself out there. Women who come across way too masculine are not going to resonate with women too who masculine. are the larger percentage. Sorry, say that again. Way too masculine. What does that come? What does that mean? Well, if you see a woman who like is actually a great example is like if you watch any movie where there's like a woman boss and she's like a complete bitch to everyone and like you know acts that way, like that's super masculine, right? Because that's how a guy would act. And if a guy was doing that, you're like, that's fine. But everyone's like, oh my God, she's a bitch. Like, because it's a girl. Um, So I think that a lot of the energy, unfortunately, people who do that then don't resonate with the women as much. And then guys respect them, but not as much as guys, other guys. And then you have the in-between, which is like this dichotomy management slash balance, which I don't think a lot of women have been able to successfully do, where you have just enough of the masculine energy to get respect and not come across like, boss, babe, you know, like I'm here for the women, girl power, like every five seconds, you know, like it's cringy and not, it's not going to resonate, right? People are just not going to take you seriously, I I think is what it comes down to. It's like being taken serious. It's not even a personal offense that you should take. It's just that like, you're just not going to take, get taken seriously if you're only talking to the women, right? And then, uh, you know, anyway, so I think that there's not enough women who have been able to successfully balance the two in content um, and, and in the information that they're putting out. And if I can put one example out there, I think that Grant Cardone's wife, Elena, does a good Mm -hmm. job now of doing that. But she's been creating content for a long time. And Grant even said it took her a really long time to find the voice and the message that she was going to put out on there, on there, you mean online, because it's really difficult, again, to, to kind of be able to resonate with both. And I think that comes through life experience. So that's why I think that the women who are crushing it with social media, with content, with just like being well known in the world, um, have either done something really big like IPO'd, but then you don't see them out there that much with their personal brand, no. or no. they've done a good job of being that in between, right? But again, very far and few in between. Yeah, I mean, that that's crazy that that dichotomy of how you have to play it as a woman in the space just to get taken, or and now now even being a minority woman. How about that? What does that mean for you? Yeah. No, totally. I think for me, I feel blessed that, uh, well, first off, I think it's because I never worked a real job, like a full nine to five. Um, you know, I, I read for our work week when I was 17, 16, and then I was like, okay, I'm always going to do my own thing. (laughs) So I never ended up getting a a real nine to five. I think if I had and gone into a, a corporate business of thousands of employees, I definitely would have experienced more discrimination, more, you know, you can't do this because you're a woman, more sexualization, more, you know, guys trying to like get something from me in exchange for me leveling up in the company, et cetera. So, so yeah, but I think as a minority women, unfortunately, a lot of women though, don't have the experience I did again, cause I grew up in Irvine. Cause there were a lot of other people around me who kind of looked like me. I'm a little more unique. Cause I'm like, Latina and Asian. So yeah. I feel like I was always able to like kind of adapt to whoever I was talking to and in, in the moment with. And also no one knows like what the fuck my ethnicity is too. So I've never really had anyone be racist to me <laughs> because they don't really know what I am. But uh, I think for a lot of other women, when I hear their stories, like absolutely, it just adds another layer, unfortunately, that before social media and online information, it was really hard to have the level playing field. Now, I think people are so judged on what they're saying, the mistakes that they make, like the actual words that are coming out of their mouth that now I feel like the playing field is truly equal because I'm going to read a alpha white male's tweet. You know, I'm going to read just what he wrote, not necessarily hearing his voice, having like his energy be so aggressive and overpowering that like, I have to believe what he's saying, you know, whereas, you know, I might read a woman's thing and it honestly is kind of the same con like consumption and like analysis process that I might go through to say, do I resonate with that? Do I like that? Do I like you, et cetera. So what do you think about, um, 
about the Elizabeth Holmes situation? Ooh, that one's really, you know, I, when I find certain stories like that, I get a little bit obsessed in like going down the rabbit hole of just like, yeah, what is the all the information I can find out about this yeah, to just yeah, yeah. Know, like, what the fuck happened? <laughs> yeah, so, you know, yeah. I read all, I don't go too aggressive where I'm like reading all the court documents or anything, but I just find any videos I can. I, I read a lot about it too. It was interesting. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. Um, and so, yeah, to her point, you know, my thoughts on how she portrayed herself, if that's kind of what you're getting at in regards yeah, to like just, her voice and how she dressed uh, and how she acted. Yeah, that, or, okay, that's the first. Yeah, I want to. Yeah, let me ask about that first. Yeah, that first. I think that everything she did, funny enough, it's like it's all science based. So so she was lowering her voice to be taken more seriously and like whatever. But like you said, tactics. over time. Yeah, over time, though, you can see that someone's faking it, right? So it just is such an icky feeling for the person as well as everyone else who's interacting. So I do think, though, like, if I can take one thing away from that, it's that a tip to people who talk like this all the time and they're like, so Valley Girl, you know, you're just not going to get taken seriously. And it's not really an appearance thing. It's just how you're speaking. So I don't want people to feel like, you know, is it the right thing to say, Hey, you shouldn't talk the way most naturally comes to you. But I think that there's an evolution in how you speak and how you portray yourself that should happen if you want to get taken seriously in business. And so if you want to do that, then do the fucking work to, to maybe like speak in a slightly different way and whatnot. If you find that that's how you talk when you're on video. So that's just one thing that I took away from that. I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, which is why she was (laughs) taken so seriously by the Silicon Valley bros. (laughs) Well, it's just funny because whenever whenever someone switches, it's one thing to – you just have to stay consistent. Whatever voice you start with, you got to commit to it. You know, it's weird. Like um, Alec Baldwin's wife, Hilaria Baldwin, had something like that too where she's like – She's supposed to be from Spain, but then she's not really from Spain, but she's had a Spanish accent, but she's not actually Spanish. And people are like – why are you doing that? She's like, well, I spent a lot of summers in Spain, but, but ma'am, you're from, you're from Jersey. Like we know you're not of Spanish roots. So it's, it's weird, right? There's, is there something tweaked there? Like it's off, yeah. right? <laughs> That's not normal. Great point. But they're trying to make it look like it's normal. Like if you spend a lot of time in, in Madrid, you'd be talking like this, but you wouldn't. <laughs> That's not your voice. Yeah. And her no, name is not Hillary, but Ilaria. Yeah. Well, to, to share another example of that, you know, the Anna Delvey series that came out on Netflix is another good example of that, you know, where maybe the delusion is more apparent there. Um, but just not having a handle on like what's actually realistic and true, I think plays a little bit of a role in that. And some people are unfortunately just born into that situation where like, that's how they were raised, right? All goes back to parenting, you know, like how did their parents- Talk about the world and what's going on and what's actually attainable, um, you know, when you say, I want to do something, how do the people around you react or, you know, how do they prepare for things really in life? So I think all of that uh, definitely affects it. So probably at the end of the day, all of us are a little bit delusional in some way or another, but that's kind of the balance of life is like working on knowing the facts and and getting to where you want to be using that info. Totally. I mean, well... I, uh, so we were talking about Elizabeth Holmes. If anyone hasn't, hasn't uh, researched her, there's well, there's multiple documentaries and series on her now, um, yeah. which, you know, I watched the HBO documentary years ago uh, and, and I wasn't going to watch the new Hulu series. I, I, I've already heard it. I, I don't need to see the reenactment of it. I get it. Uh, but, and I've seen, I've followed the case. I don't need to, and they're kind of late with that series, honestly. But um, this is a woman who started a company named Theranos. And uh, this was a company that was supposed to, basically give you blood test results with a single drop of blood 
and uh, do it from, you know, the convenience of either like really local places or even in your home. And, you know, they were, they were a billion dollar company and she got a lot of really important investors to invest in the company. And then they found out that actually they didn't have any of that technology ready to go. And it was basically, you know, not only was the technology not there, but they were also like putting people's uh, records at risk. They were giving false results on like important STA, STD tests and important other, you know, uh, test results. They were just messing them up. And um, do you think that, do you think that she had like that Steve Jobs, like delusional optimism where she just thought it was going well and this is all what it is part of the journey? Or do you think she was deliberately like playing this underhandedly? Yeah, I think a little bit of both, honestly, because her dad, I actually want to look this up because um, I forget exactly the facts. But I remember when I looked into her, her dad was a part of, was it Lehman Brothers or, or whatever, you know, in 2008, okay, like okay, he played, okay. he he was ultimately a bad actor in a similar way and really? at a similar scale to what she did um, really? from what I had found. And so I find I that interesting because again, parenting, you know, like, oh, uh, well, my dad did this, whatever. Like, so this is but then on the other side. Yeah. To your point though, I think it probably was a little bit of that delusion, which I think unfortunately a lot of people have in their entrepreneur journeys, just not always at that size scale where it's like, if we do this for long enough, it will work. And for some technologies, that makes sense if you can sustain that. And if you don't, if you're not putting lives at risk, right? Like essentially the risk can't be so big enough that it's impacting right. people in such a negative way, uh, literally, you know, playing with their lives. <laughs> so if it's just an iPhone and they, like if it's just Tesla and they miss a delivery yes. of a certain number of cars, stockholders are mad. But if you're playing with people's blood tests, <laughs> you know, it's like you picked a really hard field to fudge the numbers in. Exactly. Exactly. You know, an impossible yeah, and if, field to fudge the numbers. Right. No, completely. To where it's just like, yeah. So so the delusion definitely came from there. Yeah. But you know, it is funny though how much she she emulated and uh put Steve Jobs up on a pedestal. So I think you're totally right from that standpoint of she was like, Well, Steve Jobs made this work, you know, but again, it was she just might, yeah. wrong market. Yeah. <laughs> wrong market, yeah. I think that was a move Steve would have made, but she read the crowd wrong. You know, yep. and she got a lot of people involved, which made them look stupid too. And they didn't like exactly. that. Exactly. So, because she, yeah. I think she got uh, several different big military people to invest in her, uh, like retired generals and stuff. And they don't like that. Oh, they I didn't know that. Taken for a yeah. ride. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all the investors. So, so unfortunate, but really fascinating story. Yeah, highly recommend everyone goes and like at least watch a YouTube video or an interview with her because I think it's just fascinating to just yeah. kind of know. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and, and yeah, I, I think that, um, that, one of the things I see on popular TV shows or media now is that I have a hard time distinguishing between who we're saying is a villain and who we're saying is a hero because they'll make a Netflix series about Livedus Holmes and right next to a Netflix series about, about um, you know, Pablo Escobar. And it's like, well, totally. you know, are we celebrating these people? Because we say that we're not, but then we're like doing whole billboards with them. Like Hulu has a billboard with the actress playing Elizabeth Holmes, who's actually on trial in real life. So are we celebrating her? And doesn't that affect public opinion too? And doesn't that, wouldn't that affect the process? Like, the, I don't know. Am I just, cause she's not even dead. Yeah. So I've been thinking a lot about this too, Freaky. as you see all these things come up specifically. Um, I really loved this article, which this must've been like two years ago, pre COVID, but might be off on it. Um, the, the children of um, El Chapo or his grandchildren. Oh, I can't remember what it was, but essentially they got their own like reality TV show. And there was a lot of backlash, obviously. And I completely agree with this, that like you said, you're glorifying these people and saying, 
Hey, we care so much about what you're doing. We're not ever going to say, oh, what you guys did was good or what you did was bad. We're just going to show what happened. But in such a cinematic, manipulative way that TV, you know, producers and marketers know how to do to make them look really good, that it's so glorified that now I think unfortunately that's played into like the reason why a lot of people do things in America is that- Mass shootings um, too. Look how we portray them on CNN as an epic anti-hero. That's not, we don't want to- portray that. It creates more traction to it. Exactly. So really like, yeah, to, to your point, exactly. It's just putting attention on it in such a deep way that now that's just the seed. And now there's going to be a lot of other things that come from it, right? We're now for the next two, three, whatever months for the rest of the internet's lifetime, there's going to be thousands, millions of memes, of video clips mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. Uh, essentially this thing, you know, continuing to live on for all it's these on different and on and people on and on and on. figures. Yeah. So, and unfortunately, I think that also that plays into children's perspectives that, you know, you're seeing, you're watching maybe Disney movies, then you watch as you get a little bit older, you're watching, like you said, some of this stuff on Netflix. And now you're thinking like, it's okay if this person did it, maybe I can do a version of that or even do the same thing. And that leads, I think, to a lot of violence, a lot of delusion, a lot of just bad uh, acts because that's accepted, whether it was explicitly said, this is good or this is bad. No, and even and especially with someone like uh, like Holmes who's still alive, you know, she, obviously she didn't she didn't commit a mass shooting, she's not a murderer, so we're not comparing her in that way. But it's like, how could she look at that and say completely, "I'm bad, I'm doing the wrong thing"? Because we are celebrating her in a way, you know. And it's the same thing with like uh, the Wolf of Wall Street. Like Leo DiCaprio played Ooh, him. He is a got great a, example. You know, got an Oscar for it, and he's now he sells info products with Leo's face next to his face and says, yes. "As seen in Wolf of Wall Street." But he went to jail and he's still in debt to, yes. to lots of people. Hundreds of millions. millions. Hundreds of millions. So it's like, but he's still, li- but he's living in, in Hermosa, I think, with a nice house. It's like, hmm, yep. like, you know, what's actually happening there? Because obviously if he was really repaying people, he, and, and I don't have any judgment. Other, I don't care about him personally. But, you know, it's like, is he a, an antihero? Or we're still, Margot Robbie is, is his, his wife in the movie. It's like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> come on. <laughs> He must feel like a baller. How can he feel like he's really in trouble if Leo is playing him? Yep, completely agreed. And one more example I'll give there then, since we're talking about the Anna Delvey series most recently, she obviously didn't have any cash or money, you know, as she's going into jail. And then the Netflix deal gave her the money she needed to pay some legal fees and other exactly. things. Exactly. So- right. But she's making the money. I mean, she's obviously still in a bad position. So it's she's, she's sure, in a worse sure. position than she was before she started. So it's not like she... But she's still creating a position from her her crime. Yeah. You know, because I don't think anyone believes she's actually an heiress anymore. She's not an heiress. So yeah. she. <laughs> Even though she wrong. won't admit it anywhere, you know, in the TV interviews, everything. We went to her house. We know she's not really an heiress. So she's, she's having a mental yeah. episode and she needs mental help is what she needs. You know? <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's like that reality stranger than fiction. Same thing with Will Smith and slapping Chris Rock. It's like, it's almost like he felt like he was in a movie. You know, it's like, we're not really in reality here. No, no, agreed. And, and those lines just get so blurred because, you know, actually, you made a really interesting point there about how, and this kind of goes back to everything we just talked about, but about how now everything does kind of feel like a movie. So people yeah. just think continually they can get away with something because it was cinematized, because they saw it in like a film, or they almost treat their lives in that way. So that is an interesting, uh, which then leads to the whole, well, you know, do these things get worse as we go into the metaverse? That's a and good question. people now can have these simulated realities 
um, which, you know, of course, there'll always be governance of some kind and, you know, whatever, but, but how does that affect health and more importantly, your grasp on reality and like what's actually true or ethical? See, I, I don't actually think I want to live in a metaverse where we're constantly in VR with the headset on or where, where I constantly have some sort of uh, AR assistant. I don't think I want that. I think that would be offered too much opportunity for a bad distraction. You know, from my, I just don't think it would feel good. But maybe kids who are going to be born in the next few generations will feel like that's normal. But, oh, man. Yeah. yeah. I just don't, I hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, like like we talked about at the very beginning, I do believe that will happen to some extent. Like it's it's truly inevitable with just like everyone who believes in that. And then actually, you know what's most funny because we're talking about all of this, I mentioned that Ready Player One is the top reference that all leaders in the metaverse space yeah. make. That was the book that inspired them to do what they're yeah. doing right now. And so Fuck, kind of in a similar way, you know, it's like is is the artist wrong for the writer, or whatever, for putting out, you know, that piece of art and no, it was that a great story, book. I love that book. Right. Or is it that we as humans need to have access to more principles on how to make decisions on how to think about things? Um, but then who's right or who's wrong? So, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I think that the, the element of ready player one that creates a problem is that inside of it, both inside and outside of that metaverse, there's classism. That is already happening here in Earth, on Earth. So we're probably just going to create another strata of existence for us to exhibit classism. And that is not what I'm... And also, it just seems mentally exhausting. I mean, I have an Oculus. So I'm like, I'm part of it. I have it. And I like it. Man, some, some of the experiences... Are, have, you tried, have you tried that? I do. I have an Oculus. And now we have a uh, Valve Index because we're, we're making like both VR content, but also content within Unreal Engine. So I've been using nice. it, but... I haven't played nearly as many games and things as I want to, but I at least know like what it's the experience fun. looks and feels like. You know, I just wouldn't want to be on it all day. Yeah, at least right now, right? While it's while it's, um, I mean, there's there's so much we can kind of dive into. I don't know how much time we have left, <laughs> but uh, yeah, just keep going. But yeah, I think that you know, at the end of the day, your phone is an extension of your brain, right? What you're trying to do, right. it's fairly inefficient for me to have to pull my phone out every time I want to do something. I'm on a run. Okay. Not to carry my super heavy and gets heavier over time. Uh, every time I get a new one, yeah. iPhone, <laughs> and I don't want to get an Apple watch because well, contrary, right. I don't want to have the EMF, you know, stuck to my, to my wrist and they're just like around me all the time all day, but I already have it anyways. So I think that, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. to, to the point of it, being convenient and people eventually evolving the tech to become easier and easier and easier. It's just going to be so much harder for people to say no. And the ones who say no are going to die over time and newer generations are going to continue to say yes. So I think there will always be people in each generation who are like, we should try to slow it down. And, you know, we want to make sure we have space for this and we should, you know, be more health conscious around uh, blocking EMFs or doing EMF detoxes or all the other factors yeah. and things. But you know, at the end of the day, I do feel like it's inevitable just because we're already spending most of our time in the digital world and it's more convenient once the tech is there to be able to say something and your computer appears in front of your eyes and you can type on a holographic keyboard, et cetera. Right. So it's cool. Yeah. It's cool. You know, it's, it's just, um, but I, agree I with guess you. when I was a kid, completely. Yeah. When I was a kid, I didn't realize that we get to a point where we wouldn't have a choice. And now we're getting, I'm seeing that we're getting to that decision point where it's going to be, oh, we're probably going to be involved no matter whether we want to or not. Yeah. You know, and there are people too, like I, I've seen uh, documentaries on people who are legitimately allergic to EMF where they 
they actually will, they have to move to remote places or, or take frequent trips there to recharge their bodies because they get sick. And um, yes. that is really just showing that I think we're all affected by EMF at some level, as I'm saying this with my AirPods in. So, yeah. you know, and we're all affected by it at some level, but some people are much more sensitive, just like people would have sensitivities to light or to sugar or to, right. you know. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, a lot of this conversation can make people feel like, okay, well, what the fuck do I do then? You know, or like, should I even explore becoming healthier? Should I even do this? You know, whatever. And I think that's why you just have to be okay with living imperfectly, sustainably with, you know, good environment, with everything that's going on, like always strive to be better. But at the end of the day, like you said, it become like that choice there. It's like, okay, if you want to interact with the whole world, then you do have to be on social media. You do have to have an email or some way for people to reach you, yeah. like whatever, to an extent, right? If you want to participate in the world at a certain level or, you know, even just have access to certain information. Do you think that a lot of these celebrities who are not, who don't have public accounts have like private shit accounts that they are just mm. still browsing, but they're not interacting? I think well, they are, but it's <laughs> my Gen Z opinion is that you can tell if they do based on how they, you know, describe their interaction with technology. Um, oh my gosh, who is it? It's the guy and I love you, man. Why am I blanking on his name? Uh, uh, Paul Rudd. Okay, so oh, Paul Rudd. <laughs> so Paul Rudd says he, I believe he's never had social media accounts, whatever, but he does one thing, sure. which is that uh, I think when he went on the Hot Ones show, which is, you know, the show where they eat the, the hot wings, Sean Evans, and he showed Sean all these pictures he has of celebrities where he like does this thing with his hand and it makes it look like there's like, they're like faces on a butt, but it's his hand or whatever. And so... <laughs> I'm doing a terrible job explaining it how he did, but I think that like that kind of approach to to just creating content for yourself, you can kind of tell as he's describing everything, at least from my perspective, just because I spend so much time on social or like talking to people who are versus aren't, um, then I'm like, yeah, this guy is not on social media like at all. <laughs> but then yeah. you hear other people yeah. and you're like, okay, you could have like a, a very anonymous account where you're just consuming or, or shit posting or interacting. So I think it's kind of based on someone's energy and kind of how they act, but you know, that's my. Yeah. There was, um, there was a great, oh man, <laughs> there was a great uh, SNL skit where uh, Steve Buscemi was on it. Who's like this funny, very, very interesting character actor with this, you know, crazy face. He's old now. He's in his 50s or probably sixties now. And he has, um, he has like a, like a high school Jersey on and a hat. And he's like, Hey, how are you all fellow young kids doing? You know? And it's very obvious that he's not part of the crew. Uh, and same with someone who's not used to being on social. They don't understand yeah. the <laughs> the dynamic. Yeah, it's it's so interesting to watch. And sometimes I kind of do that because I feel like I've been living, living the last six years as if I'm like much older. You know, I like to think that my identity was like this 40-year-old, you know, like <laughs> woman who's doing her thing, her businesses. And now I feel like I've come back a lot more to like where I'm at and feel a lot more authentic and like whatever. But it's funny because I almost feel like before I would like be putting out content or like, you know, it, reading comments or whatever from people or, or whatever. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm so out of touch with like how to do this. And then now I feel like I've become so much better, which I think comes with experience, but also it's like an age thing where now I can like see how, even if someone's putting out really great content, you go and read how they reply to comments or what they say to people. And I'm just like, dude, you just don't understand how to like communicate with people. So it's really interesting. 